Hello, this is Pastor Patrick Hines, and I would like to press on in Nehemiah chapter 3. And uh, here in Nehemiah chapter 3, you have kind of the organizational uh, chapter, a lot of um, really interesting, beautiful uh, names here. Uh, but once Nehemiah reveals his plans to the people and gives them a pep talk about what happened there in Persia before he got there and why they had a military escort and how King Artaxerxes just let them all go to go rebuild <clears throat> the wall in the city and to do everything that they that he felt called to do, uh, they're all excited. And uh, if you remember on uh, the previous chapter, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse uh, 19 there, or 18 and 19, um, uh, 18 says, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. And so they immediately, all the people uh, that were there are like, well, let's get to it. Let's do it. Since God's on our side and, and we have uh, all this material and all this stuff, let's get working. And of course, as soon as they start doing that, and as soon as someone's there to seek the well-being of the people of Israel, uh, their enemies immediately go to work. Sambalat the Horonite, uh, Tobiah the Ammonite official, Geshem the Arab, uh, they laughed at them, despised them, and they said, what is this thing they're doing? They're going to rebel against the king, yada yada, um, doing what the bad guys always do, which is just lie uh, and slander and all that kind of stuff. And of course, Nehemiah understands exactly because he's wise understands exactly how to deal with them and lets them know the god of heaven is going to prosper us therefore we we his servants will arise and build but you have no heritage or right or memorial in jerusalem so he doesn't have a long conversation with them because as i mentioned last time these are the dogs and the pigs uh, matthew 7 6 says uh, jesus commands us not to give what is holy to dogs and not uh, to cast our pearls before swine because they only want to hurt us and there are times that you have to recognize that's what you're dealing with. So let's look at this chapter here. A lot of fascinating names here. I'm not going to have a whole lot of comment here because this is more so about the various people with their various technical forms of expertise. Uh, but this is part of God's word, so we're going to read through it. <clears throat> Verse 1, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. Also, the sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and jars. And next to them, Meramoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besedeah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Moronophite, the men of Gibeon, and Mizpah, repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. <laughs> and next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hor, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramoth, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashavniah, made repairs. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired the, another section, as well as the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halahesh, leader of half the, half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Hanan, the son of the inhabitants of Zanoah, repaired the valley gate. 
They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. Malkaja, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Shalom, the son of Kol Hosea, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Bethzur, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David, to the man-made pool as far as the house of the mighty. After him, the Levites, under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hashabiah, leader of half the district of Kaliah, of, of, excuse me, of Kaila, made repairs for his district. After him, their brethren, under Baibai, the son of Henadad, leader of the other half of the district of Kaila, made repairs. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, care carefully repaired the other section, from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs or repaired another section, from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After, and after him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, made repairs. Moreover, the Nethanim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the place from the water gate, in front of the water gate toward the east, and on the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower, and as far as the wall of Ophel. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim and of the merchants in front of the Mikh Mifkad gate, and as far as the upper room at the corner, and between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Okay, so because Nehemiah did not uh, start wheeling and dealing and hanging out with and talking to and trying to understand where Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem are coming from, to understand their spiritual journeys and things like that. They were able to start getting some serious work done. I mean, all these people, I mean, these are those are pretty hard names to pronounce. Um, but they're all getting to work. And, you know, it's it's odd to think all these people, you know, were there with these abilities. They just needed a leader. They needed someone to kind of kick them in the pants and say, let's do this. Let's get to work. God will help us. God will bless us. Let's do this work. But I think the key, as I've said before, the key to Nehemiah's success here and being faithful to God and doing what God wanted him to do was his knowledge and his wisdom on how to deal with the bad guys. 
You know, I was, I've been listening to Daryl Hart uh, uh, do a lecture series on Jay Gresson Machen. It is outstanding. It's a podcast. Uh, it's just a lecture series on the history of the Presbyterian controversy. And Machen is one of my heroes of the faith. Um, he is absolutely uh, incisive in his writing and uh, just understood things so well. But uh, something came forward in, in listening to this lecture series today as I was driving around today. I went up to Bristol to meet someone for coffee today. Uh, but driving back, I got to listen to a couple couple whole lectures. And he pointed out that between the time of the beginning of the controversy and Machen finally being basically found guilty on all, all the things they charged him with, which was a, a complete baloney, it took 16 years. 16 years that he devoted to that controversy. Now, for my part, I wish Machen would have just left. And I, I, again and again, I kept thinking as I was listening to it, why did he stay that long? You know, I mean, you're fighting and fighting and fighting to, to, to do what? To stay in a denomination that was overrun, at that point already completely overrun with liberals? I mean, Machen himself says that the, the problem was great companies of unconverted persons held teaching offices in the church. I'm like, why are you fighting to stay there? So eventually when Machen, after 16 years of combat, he founds the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and um, the rest, as they say, is history. But I just think, I, I wish, part of me really wishes that Machen had just devoted himself to more writing, more preaching, discipling men, um, preparing guys for the ministry, rather than giving all those years and all that time and all that effort to guys that it was obvious. It was obvious when the controversy started. They didn't care about the truth. They never did. These were liberals. What is liberalism? Liberalism equals unbelief. Liberalism is unbelief. They didn't believe the Bible. Uh, one of the things that came out in listening to those lectures was uh, the fact that um, there was a, a committee that uh, came back talking about Presbyterian missions. We no longer believe that the purpose of missions is to rescue souls from hell and to, to redeem men from the curse of the law so that they don't go to hell. I, that is unbelievable. They basically just said, we don't care about the Great Commission anymore. Because isn't that the whole point? Make disciples of the nations? It's not about alleviating poverty and dealing with the problems of this world. Certainly, we should, as citizens of this world, be, be engaged in that kind of activity and be concerned about things like that. But that's not primarily the work of the Christian ministry. But anyway, so all that time was devoted to, to liberals that could have been devoted to other things. But Nehemiah, to me, is just the ultimate object lesson in staying on task. Okay, so I, I doubt that many of my listeners have spent a whole lot of time in recent memory reading Nehemiah chapter 3. Okay, because it's about all this technical work and all this, this guy made repairs to this place and this guy repaired that. I mean, most of us can't even picture um, where they even are in the city of Jerusalem, if we can even think of a map of Jerusalem in our, in our minds and hearts. In fact, the commentaries that I read on Nehemiah uh, when I was preparing the, my sermons on it said that uh, because the, the landscape in the city of Jerusalem is so different today, it's actually pretty hard to pin down exactly where they're making all these repairs. Now, when Nehemiah, when, when this was written, they all knew, anyone that would have read this at the time knew exactly what they were talking about. But today, I mean, we don't know. Um, where is Ophel? And uh, where, where is the, the court of the prison? Where exactly is the East Gate? I mean, do we, do we know for sure? Well, we don't really need to know. I think that the main thing to gather from this is, 
you have all this organization and all this work is being done. These guys are not messing around with their enemies. I love that at the end of chapter two, that's the end of chapter two is the reason why they were able to get all this work done. And as you're going to see, as more, as the escal, as the uh, opposition escalates, Nehemiah shows more and more and more just how wise he really is. He knows exactly how to handle this stuff. He knows exactly what to say and not to say, who to talk to and who not to talk to. And at one point, he almost does get tricked uh, by someone claiming to be a priest who was really hired by his enemies to try to trip him. But thankfully, Nehemiah was one step ahead of that too. But the key here is when these guys start mocking here in Nehemiah 2, 19 and 20, Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, they laughed at us and despised us. What is this you're doing? You're going to rebel against the king. Nehemiah just lets them know, no, God's on our side. Bye. And they get to work. And they don't mess with them anymore. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 4, uh, things get, uh, get ratcheted up a little bit. In Nehemiah chapter 4, uh, now we start getting threats. Now we get threats, and uh, Sambalat goes from being, well, what does it say at the end of uh, chapter 2? Hold on one second. They, were, uh, they laughed at us and despised us, and we also know from earlier uh, they were disturbed, that uh, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come seeking the well-being of the children of Israel. So he's deeply disturbed. Okay, so Sambalat's disturbed that Nehemiah and his friends are there to you know, seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Then they go from, from being deeply disturbed to laughing and despising. But then they get all this work done because they don't mess with their enemies. And look at the beginning of chapter 4. So what happened? When Sambalot heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and very indignant. Okay, so he's not just angry. He's not disturbed. He's furious. And he's not just angry. He's not just indignant. He's very indignant very angry and mocks the Jews and his opposition begins to escalate and they start mocking and you know claiming oh, a fox went up on there and knock it down and blah 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 and Nehemiah prays you know for God's judgment on them and it's it's awesome stuff and yet they just keep right on working and when they start threatening him we're going to come and attack you that's when you get that that iconic scene of they've got a, a sword in one hand and a, a masonry tool it's a trowel in the other hand that's where charles spurgeon got the name of his famous magazine the sword and the trowel in other words with one hand you're building with the other hand you're guarding and that's what nehemiah 4 is about so uh that's how nehemiah dealt with his enemies so you guys can go fly a kite but if you want to come attack us we'll be ready we're ready for you we have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other and that's the way you got to deal with uh, with the leftists and the, the people that w would love more than anything for you to invest all your time talking to them and messing with them and responding to them rather than expositing scripture, discipling people in your church, and preparing guys for ministry. But I can tell you from my part, I'm not doing that. I'm not messing with liberals and I'm not messing with progressivists that want to blather and talk about side B Christian. It's not going to take up my time. I'm not doing that. I'm going to focus on the tasks at hand because that's what one of my great fathers in the faith, Nehemiah, did. And he did it with great determination and great wisdom and great success. And that's why we're reading through this book, because there's much, much, much more wisdom here for us to gain from. So thank you all for watching or for listening.